You guys got your Bibles with you? Open up to Psalm 32, and that's where we'll begin our journey uh, tonight as we take a look at what God has for us. We continue um, our, our uh, study through the Psalms. Tonight we come to one uh, of seven penitentiary Psalms, uh, uh, which means a Psalm uh, seeking forgiveness or the blessing of forgiveness. One of the great things that we discover as we... Um, enjoy the state of salvation we put our faith and trust in jesus christ is hopefully the joy of psalm 32 what it feels like to have your sins forgiven what it feels like to be in a right relationship with god so david is somebody who understood that right we're all aware that in david's life uh he had um battles with sin yeah and in fact, what would it be like to be David? Your most well-known attribute is a horrible failing that you had in your life. He's not most well-known for being king. He's not even most well-known for being a man after God's own heart. Everybody knows David by his sin, right? His failure with Bathsheba. And uh, as a result... David, maybe more than a lot of other people, can uh, is qualified to tell us in Psalm 32 the joy of having your sin forgiven. Listen to what he says. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He begins with the joy of forgiveness. In fact, he declares, how happy is the man whose transgression is is forgiven. When we talk about transgression, and we talk about sin, and we talk about iniquity, uh, all those words have pictures behind them. Uh, transgression is a, uh, um, well, I don't want to say willful sin, because you'll get the wrong idea, but it's a sin on purpose. You saw the line, you stepped over the line. Anybody ever experienced sin like that? You knew you shouldn't do it, but you did it anyhow. Then you have iniquity, which carries a word picture, the idea of twisted, uh, uh, twisting uh, confusing of uh, of God's principles. And then uh, we look at sin. Sin carries the basic idea of, of knowing what's expected and missing the mark. That here's what's expected. I, however, did not hit that mark. I have missed the mark. That's sin. So when he, when he looks at it, he's going to use several words to lay out for us. But what he wants us to understand is the joy and the happiness that can be found when our sins are forgiven. When our transgressions forgiven, when our iniquity is forgiven. In fact, in verse two, he builds on the concept. He says, blessed is the man or, oh, how happy, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The one that God doesn't charge. That God doesn't charge. The scripture lays out for us that that not only does God not charge those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but He puts something else in their account. Instead of imputing or putting into your account your sin, God puts into your account His righteousness. That He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. What's not based on any effort that we have, it's all a work that He completed. And he places that in our account. So not only do we experience the joy of forgiveness, that God forgives us 
of our sins. But then we also enjoy the happiness of not having placed into our account our sinfulness. Which means our sinfulness is not always before God's eyes. In fact, the psalmist declares, how far does God remove our sin from us? Far to east is from the west, right? We're familiar with that. Why didn't he say north and south? It's cold there. But if I go far enough north, I'll end up going south. North and south touch. But I can go east forever. And I can go west forever. East and west don't meet. So when the Lord chose that very specifically to let us understand that our sin, when forgiven, is not imputed. It's gone. It's left. It's not in the account, not placed in the account. And then he goes on in verse 2 to tell us, And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now that the word picture for that concept of deceit is a, 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 an attempt to hide your sin. So David says, he's saying, I'm happy because my sin's forgiven. It's covered. What, what is our sin covered by? The blood. For David, it was the blood of the Lamb looking forward to the cross. For you and I, it's the blood of the Lamb looking back to the cross. So, it's covered by the blood of the Lamb. Blessed is a man whom the Lord does not impute or charge iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. That means the man is not trying to pretend he's not a sinner. That I'm not guilty. Or, or I'm making excuses. I'm, my dad taught me pretty early with a belt that if I make excuses, it was worse. There was not going to be no excuses. If you've done wrong, he, he taught me to own up to the wrong that was done. I really don't have a hard time saying I'm wrong. I don't even have a hard time telling my wife I'm wrong. Yes, I've been doing it for 30 years now. I don't have a hard time telling her that I'm wrong. I don't have a hard time owning up to my issues because my father taught me very well to take responsibility. If I made a bad choice, did something wrong, I will not have a hard time admitting fault and asking for forgiveness. And that's kind of the point that David's making here. There's no deceit. There's no attempt to cover your own sin, to pretend you're not a sinner, to pretend... You weren't guilty. Now David, when he <clears throat> sinned with Bathsheba, he thought he got away with it, didn't he? I mean, there was a period of time he thought, well, nobody's called me out on this. You know, it's a really a horrific sin because he kills his friend. Well, sometimes when we read the Bible, we forget that, that uh, Uriah the Hittite was one of the mighty men of David. That means he was in the caves. He's been with David since before David was king. David is not like some guy that just happened to be married to a pretty gal that David wanted. This is somebody David knew. So, nonetheless, he thinks, well, I got away with it. I got away with it. But what occurred the moment that Nathan said to David, David, you're that man. You're the man. It's your sin. And immediately, David repents. Immediately, David falls on his face. Immediately, he acknowledges. He doesn't try to cover it up. What was Saul's problem? Every time God came to Saul and, and said to Saul, Saul, man, you know, through the prophet, he's talking to him through, through Samuel most often. Hey, you're blowing it here. You blew it here. You blew it here. What did Saul do every time? He had an excuse. That's not my fault. 
It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. It wasn't me. It was my, the way my mom and dad raised me. It's not my fault. It, it, it's not me. It was that guy over there. It's not me. Not me-itis. Or you're constantly trying to cover your own sin. That is what the Bible talks about when it says that, that you are, are uh, attempting to be deceitful. To cover it yourself. We can't cover our own sin, nor can we pay for our own sin. What does David declare in verse 3? Look at it. It says, when I kept silent. Not if I kept silent. What do we know about David? There was a period of time in his sin where he was quiet, right? Kept his, my lips are sealed. I'm not going to tell nobody. Nobody's going to know. But what's he say? When I kept silent, my bones grew old. The deep unrest of mind and body that results in our stubbornness to sin. Uh, Jesus said some amazing things. One of those amazing things is, all sin will be forgiven man. When he's talking about the, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the first part of that phrase is, all sin will be forgiven men. That's a pretty amazing thing. So, since I'm not actually talking about the, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I won't get too far into that. But the point that I want to make, he said, all sin, all sin will be forgiven, man. There's, there's this one sin which I believe is rejecting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the, His ability to save you. But we'll get into that point. We actually got into that point on Sunday. Get the tape and you can hear it. But nonetheless, uh, he says, all sin, all sin will be forgiven you. David says, I stayed in my sin. I kept my mouth silent. Now, what's he talking about? It's not about confessing it to other people. Who's he keeping his mouth silent to? He hasn't declared it to the Lord, right? In fact, God's got to knock on the door and say, David, you're the dude. I know what you've done. So he's silent. He's not confessing. So there's been no confession of sin. So for David... There's been no forgiveness. So what does that mean? That means his mind is tormented. His body is falling apart. Sin destroys us from the inside out. And that's what's going on. It's it's destroying him. He says, through my groaning all day long. Now, as far as he knew, he's gotten away with it. Nobody's caught him on a table. But he's saying, all day, my groaning, my body is moaning. I'm not right. I know I'm not right on the inside. Look, if you truly have a relationship with Christ, you cannot be in sin and be satisfied. If you are in sin and you are satisfied, you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's that simple. If I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I may struggle and fall, but I'm convicted and I'm bothered by my sin. If I am not bothered by my sin, if I can live in sin, if I can live in what I know God's Word teaches me not to be or not to do, if I can stay in that place, I don't belong to Him. If it bothers me, just like what David's talking about, all day long it was groaning. I hadn't confessed it yet, but my bones were getting old. I was, I was getting weary about my sin. Then that's indication that you belong to the Lord. Because he won't let you get by. He'll keep poking you with a stick. And and this thing will bug you and bug you and bug you and bug you until, like David, you 
finally open up your mouth before the Lord. Look what it says in verse 4. For day and night, whose hand was heavy on him? The Lord, right? Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, musical rest. Pause and think about what I just said. So he's saying, God's hand was heavy on me. I can feel God's hand. I can feel this oppression in my spirit that was a result of my sin. But stubbornness on David's part, he just sat in it. Anybody ever done that before? Just sat there in that place, even though you feel rotten and you know it ain't right and, and it's not good, but yet you sit in that place. That's what David had done. But then, in a moment in time, God met him in that place. God ever meet you there? He met him in that place. Let's look what it says in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He says, look, I acknowledge. When Nathan looks, points at David after telling him the story, David says, uh, that man should die and pay four times for what he's done. And Nathan points at him and says, you're the man. It's your sin I've been telling you about. Then in the 51st Psalm, David declares, Against you and you only have I sinned. What's God declaring? My greatest offense is not to Uriah the Hittite. My greatest offense is not to Bathsheba. My greatest offense is not to my children. Though all of those areas of his life were offended and affected by his sin, his greatest offense was to God. And David acknowledges that. Against you, I have sinned. I have offended God. So the first place he goes is to the Lord. To you, I acknowledge my sin. I stop hiding my sin. I stop sitting in that place where I have not confessed it. And my iniquity, my twistedness, I have not hidden. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Again, that's a statement of will. It's a statement of what occurred, but it's also a statement of will. That means it's a continuous process, right? I will means I I am continuing to confess my transgressions. The times I stepped over the line, and I knew I stepped over the line. Oops, I wonder if that was wrong. Nope, I knew that was wrong. I stepped over the line. I transgressed the law. So I confessed my transgressions. And what does God do when we confess? 1 John 1, nine tells us, If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us. From how much? All unrighteousness. So He who knew no sin makes us clean. Perfect. And that's, what, that's the work that, that David is saying. This is happiness experiencing this and knowing the forgiveness of sin, knowing that God is willing to forgive my sin. My part in, in my sin and my twistedness is simply to confess. To confess, homologeo means to say the same thing as. <clears throat> it means if God calls it sin, it's sin. Whether I agree or disagree is irrelevant. If God says this activity, whatever that activity is, if God says this activity is sin, I don't want you to do it. And I do it, I have transgressed. Whether I think it should be sin or not is irrelevant. God said it's sin. 
My job is to confess it as sin. Lord, this attitude in my heart is sin. What does God promise to do? Forgive it. However, if I won't confess it, if I want to pretend like it's not sin and it's okay and it doesn't matter what I'm doing, then I find myself still in a place of sin, unable to or unwilling to confess. That's a rotten place to be. At best, if you're a brother or sister, at best, your bones are waxing old, (laughs) your attitudes are wore out, your mind is tired, you're groaning all day. That sounds like it's misery, doesn't it? Or, at worst, you don't belong to the Lord at all, in which case you probably don't care that you're in sin anyways. So, we want to be those men and women who are willing to confess our sin. Look what he tells in verse 6. He says, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. For this cause. So now, he's pausing, he's, he's turning away from the penitentiary part of the psalm, crying to God for forgiveness. He's saying, now, for this, because of what I just explained to you about how happy forgiveness makes you and understanding your right relationship with the Lord, <clears throat> because of that, Everyone who belongs to God, everyone who's godly, everyone who wants to follow the Lord, they're going to pray like that. They're going to confess their sin. Here, I've shared before, the church gets some things backwards. For example, we spend a lot of time wanting to judge the world. That, That doesn't make any sense. Look, the world is full of sinners and we should expect sinners to sin, shouldn't we? We spend all our time judging the world and we don't spend enough time judging the church. The Bible says judgment begins in the house of God. Once you proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's where judgment starts. Now I stand before holy God and I need to acknowledge my sin. And I need to acknowledge those things in my life that need to be cast away so that I may lay hold of Him. And all that He has for me. I need to experience, that's what he's saying. Look, when for this cause, for this issue of forgiveness, everyone who's godly will pray in the time that you may be found. Now look at that phrase. In the time that you may be found, immediately moves from that phrase to surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. So when he talks about the flood, immediately the mind, the context moves from uh, to a place of judgment. So what he's saying is, look, the... The godly are going to pray to you before the judgment comes. While there's still time. While there's still time, they'll, they'll call on you when, when you may be found and an opportunity before the floodwaters come, before the judgment comes, because a godly man or a godly woman is going to live a life of confession to the Lord for their failures and for their sin. That'll be what marks them. It's one of the things, I've shared a hundred thousand times probably, that I love about Celebrate Recovery. My identification is in Jesus Christ. So when I start at a a Celebrate Recovery meeting, I would say something like, Hi, my name is Jackie. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. That's my identity. My identity is not my struggle. My identity is Jesus Christ. You guys get what I'm saying? Maybe it seems like a small difference, but it's a big deal to me. That's my identity. The next part of the phrase would be, who struggles with whatever it might be. Drugs, alcohol, uh, pornography, whatever the issue may be. That's my struggle. That's that thing which I confess. But my identity 
is in Christ Jesus. My identity is in the Lord. In Jesus Christ. We are all just men made perfect, right? In Christ. There is the imputation of righteousness and no imputation of sin or iniquity. So God makes us clean. Now he describes that to us perfectly in verse 7. If you watch, he's kind of talking in the third person. In verse 7, everything gets personal. It gets personal. Look what he says. You, looking to God, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. He's he's overwhelmed by all that God does and what he experiences when he confesses his sin. So he says, you're my hide. I hide in you. If I'm in Christ Jesus, like I just shared, I'm a just man made perfect. In him, I'm perfect. In me, I'm screwed up. But in Him, I am a just man made perfect. It is He who preserves me from trouble. It is God that keeps me through the time of trouble. It is He that surrounds me with songs of deliverance. David is saying, man, the more I think about what God has done for me, the more songs burst forth. The whole first book of five... In the Psalms, the Psalms that we read in our Bible is made up of five books. The whole first book, 1 through 72, is all songs David wrote. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Your ability to carry me through, to take me from this place of trouble. So in verse 8, he says, here's a lesson to be learned. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Now who's speaking? I don't think David's talking anymore. Uh, David's writing, but I don't think David's talking. I think God's talking. He said in verse 7, You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. And then I think we hear God's answer. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. God's saying, look, I'm going to... I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to guide you. What does it say in the 23rd Psalm? Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil for... Yeah, thou art with me. Thy what? Thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me. Both of those were implements of the shepherd for guiding the sheep. Right? Directing the sheep. Both could be used as implements of discipline. Both could be used as instruments to guide And all accomplishing the same thing. The Lord says, look, I'll instruct you. And I'll teach you the way you should walk. So then in verse 9, here's what God says. Do not be a mule. Everybody understand what that means? (laughs) He says, he says, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, or they won't come near you. So he's saying, don't be like the horse and the mule that, that God's got to shove something in their mouth to get them to go someplace. He's got to force them to go. What he's saying is, don't be like that. Cooperate with what God's doing. Be sensitive to God's direction and to God's will. Be sensitive to what God is trying to work and how God's trying to move. Stop resisting and struggling what God's trying to do. We don't want to be like that. Like that mule that don't want to go anywhere. I'll never forget. 
my pastor, Pastor Jerry, used to tell me a story. <clears throat> he had a retreat center down in the desert, and somebody had given him a mule. And they could never get that mule to do nothing. That mule only wanted to do what the mule wanted to do. So they sold the mule. And Pastor Gerald was very excited about it. Sold the mule. So he went to take the mule just next door. The fella next door. The next, the next property over. Which was, you know, probably quarter of a mile down the road or so to, to get the mule to where he needed to go. So, so Pastor Gerald grabs that mule and he starts to go, the mule won't walk. It just won't, I'm, it says, I don't, you tug and pull, put it all on me. I am not going to no place. That's what the mule said. So Pastor Gerald said, okay. He went and got the truck. And he tied the mule to the bumper. And he said, look, you can choose how much of your hoof is still going to be attached when we get there. But you are going to go. Put it in gear, start driving. And there are skid marks for quite a ways. And a mule saying, nope, 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 okay. For some of us, we have those same skid marks. God's trying to, to take us. Our feet are planted. We're hopping on the ground. I'm not going to go. But somewhere along the way, we go, okay. Okay. You don't have how, how long that, that, that trench in the road behind you is. I uh, guess it's up to your own stubbornness. But God says, don't be like the mule and the horse. <clears throat> they have to have a bit in its mouth to get it to go anywhere. Be cooperating with what God's doing. Now, we always ask the question, well, how do I know what God's doing? That's right here. That's what God's doing. If, if your lifestyle or your choices don't line up with this, you're not doing what God wants you to do. It's not. It's not rocket science. It's right here. In God's Word, spelled out what God wants us to do. How God wants us to behave. Where God wants us to go. So he says, don't be like that. Don't resist. Don't struggle. Respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy Shall surround them. Remember how we went, when we went through the 23rd Psalm, I told you what's supposed to be in your wake behind you. What's supposed to be behind you. Not two deep trenches from your feet stuck in the, in the ground. What's supposed to be behind you is grace and mercy. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. He says here, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy will surround him. Surround him. All around him on every side. Mercy, 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 mercy is around him. These are, are those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So he ends it again with a proclamation of joy and happiness, the same way he began a proclamation of joy and happiness because his sins had been forgiven. In the middle, he charged us, don't be like the mule. Don't be like that stubborn horse that won't do what it wants to do unless somebody puts a bit in his mouth. Respond to the Holy Spirit. Respond to God's direction. Now when we come to the 33rd Psalm, we come again to a Psalm of praise. A Psalm of praise. <clears throat> he begins, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Now, I, I need to say this, this idea. Rejoice in the Lord. It's 
In the is the important two words in that phrase. It's not rejoice. When we talk about rejoice, and again I say rejoice, rejoice in everything. Rejoice in all the circumstances of life. We should be able to have an attitude of joy no matter what's going on. But where does our joy come from? In the Lord. It's in the Lord. It's in what God is doing for us, what God has done for us, what God is going to continue to do for us. It's in Him. That's where our joy is found. Our joy is definitely anchored in our Lord and Savior. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. For praise from the upright is beautiful. That's That just kind of looks at God's view. <clears throat> you have the psalmist telling everyone, rejoice Rejoice in the Lord, all you who are righteous. And then the response, for praise from the upright is beautiful. That's how God sees your worship. He loves it. He says your worship is beautiful. Well, Jackie, if he heard me, he wouldn't say that. Yeah, he would. He would say it no matter what, because your worship. Now, worship is not just the songs we sing. Worship is the life we live. One of the things we discussed at the at the men's retreat, just coming... We just come back from the, the men's advance. And one of the things we discussed at that is everybody gets the same gift. We are all given one life. And the choice, you what you do with that life is up to you. You can make any choice you want to make, right? So the challenge is, don't waste it. Don't waste the one thing God's given you. And certainly... Rejoicing in the Lord is not wasting the gift that God has given. Singing the song of praise is beautiful when the Lord looks. Praise the Lord, he says, with the harp. I always bring that out. He's going to say, praise the Lord with the harp and praise the Lord with an instrument of ten strings. Another place he'll say, praise the Lord with your voice. But that's not what he says here. Praise the Lord with a harp. Just music. It's possible to praise the Lord with just music. It's possible that, that God gives a gift of, of, uh, skill. And he's going to talk about that in a moment with, with instruments, whatever type. And it is possible to use that gift which God has given, giving it back to him, just playing out for the Lord. Just playing for him. Just praising God through the use of your skill with a musical instrument, with the harp, and the instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Now when we talk about the Hebrew word for new. There are <clears throat> words that mean like brand new. And there's words that mean fresh. A new perspective. That's the word that's used here. It's not like brand new. Something that's radically different. Or that nobody's ever heard before. It's fresh. It's having a, a fresh look on something that God's done. On God's redemptive story. Maybe His redemptive story in your life. Or the redemptive story in the, in the lives of the children of Israel. But in whatever way, sing to Him a new song. Fresh. With fresh eyes. Seeing the, the sacrifice that God has accomplished in your life or in my life. In fresh ways. Having a fresh attitude of worship. And then the challenge of the second part of verse 3. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Wow, Jackie, I tried to get you to to let me come up and and play guitar and do worship. And you won't let me. Maybe because you don't know how to play the guitar. 
<laughs> you want to come play the kazoo and do it? We could probably work that out as long as you can play the kazoo skillfully. The Bible says we're to play skillfully with a shout of joy. That we're to use the ability we have, the measure of the ability we have. It honors the Lord when we provide to Him our, our skill, that which God has gifted and we have developed that we can then give back to Him. We can also or should also learn to think skillfully. That's a problem in the world today. Nobody wants to have to think. Everybody wants to get spoon-fed. But there's a point where we need to take that which we understand in our intellect and we say, you know what, I need to train my intellect. I need to train my understanding. I want to be able to study the Word of God skillfully. I want to be able to sing praises skillfully. I want to be able to utilize the gifts and abilities that God has given us. So He wants us to, to play well when we go before the Lord. For the word of the Lord, and here's why. Here's the whys. Why are we praising? Why are we rejoicing? Why are we praising? Why are we singing with a harp? Why are we praising with a ten strings? Why are we singing a fresh new song? Why do we want to play skillfully? Why do we want to worship the Lord? That little phrase, for, is the answer. For, because, because of, the word of the Lord is right. And he's going to develop that idea. Because the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So he gives us the why. Why do we worship? Why do we praise God? Because the word of God is right, perfect, just. It is righteous. It is correct. He says, because his work is done in truth. What God does, he does Truly, Jesus declared to us in John, I am the way, what else? The truth and the life, right? He is the embodiment of truth. If John 1, 1, which declares that the Word was with God, which means the Word is eternal, and that the Word was God, that the Word is is uh, God Himself, and and as we look at that proclamation that He declares... If Jesus Christ is the truth, we can say God is truth. Holy Spirit is truth. God is the embodiment of that which is true. Everything he does is right and just. In fact, he goes on to tell us that he loves righteousness. God loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. I've been to some pretty amazing places. I have lived a charmed life. I have stood on the shores of the Amazon uh, River in the middle of the rainforest and watched the the beauty around me it was amazing. Is I've I've had now the opportunity to be in the jungles of Africa in the in the probably one of the more beautiful areas right next to. Mozambique, right in the heart of Africa. Seen amazing things. I've had opportunity to stand on the Swiss Alps. I've had opportunity to see some of the most incredible areas of Nizhny Novgorod in Russia. Had opportunity to be on uh, three different islands in the Philippines. Yeah, the goodness of God is all over the world. 
The majesty of the Lord can be seen in his creation, in the beauty that he paints with. The brush that God uses in creation is amazing to see. And so when it says the earth is full of the goodness of God, man, it's everywhere. You have to want to not see it. To miss out on it. And then he goes on in verse 6 to describe it. Why are we praising God? We're praising Him for His the rightness of His Word and the truth of His work. And the fact that He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of His goodness. And then he's going to describe another reason. Why should we worship the Lord? For His creation. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. How did creation take place? God said it, and it happened. That's what the Bible declares. I'm sorry, people don't like it. I don't really care. The Bible says it. That's how it happened. God said, let there be light, and light was. God spoke creation into being. The heavens were made. And the host of the heavens by the breath of his mouth. Now he's talking about life. The host of the heavens are specifically talking about the angels. When we talk about the angel of the Lord or the Lord of the Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, he's all, whenever he uses that phrase, he's always talking about the angels. So how do the angels come to be? By the breath of his mouth. The Bible tells us he breathes life into that which is living. And it becomes a living being, right? He breathes by the breath of his mouth all the host of them. Uh, he gathers the waters as the sea uh, of the sea together in a heap. And he lays up the deep in storehouses. He's got the waters gathered. He gathers them together. We have large bodies of water all around the world. They all speak of God's design in creation. He says in verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So, again, telling us why should we praise the Lord? He says praise Him for creation. For the things that we see in creation. God's creative order. We should be thankful that the ocean stays where the ocean's supposed to be, right? And it doesn't come out and cover the land. That would be a bad thing. Because of God's creative order, we can... Praise the Lord for what he's done. Then in verse 10, he begins to tell us we can praise God for his providence, for his counsel, his plan. It says in verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. I don't know, the UN doesn't read this part. (laughs) Nor does a lot of other government agencies. But God says, look, you guys can get together and plan and plot all you want. But the Bible tells us very clearly that the Lord laughs. When the nations rage and plot. Do do your worst. You cannot circumvent the plan and the purpose of God. So he brings the counsel, the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. He said, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Things cannot happen outside of the sovereignty of God. If something happens outside of the sovereignty of God, it is intellectual suicide to try to 
to stand firm on that point. Because the sovereignty of God is like a mutually exclusive term. God is either sovereign or God is not sovereign. Yes, God is sovereign. Our struggle is how do we understand or comprehend the the existence of evil with a sovereign God. That has nothing to do with His sovereignty. That has everything to do with with, uh, uh, our responsibility. The Bible holds two things in dynamic tension. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Man has choice. God has sovereignty. And nothing we can do that will go outside of God's will and purposes and plans for us. Yet because of that freedom uh, within humanity, we see the existence of evil in our world. God knew it. It's part of God's sovereign purpose and plan. And we, you and I, we bring it about by the things we choose, how we move. It says in verse 12, though, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So now he's saying, look, God is providential. He's, he's sovereign. He is overall. Nothing can happen apart from God's purpose in our life. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Now, specifically, David's talking about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel being that blessed nation who God chose, right? Of all the nations of the world, God chose the nation of Israel. They're his elect, his chosen people. But I think it can also be applied as we find ourselves in in this dispensation of grace, as we see this time of the gospel going forward, that those people whose God is the Lord, the nation who serves the Lord will be blessed. The nation who doesn't, won't. Blessed means what? Oh, how happy that satisfaction we have when we fulfill our purpose. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And in verse 13, not only for His providence, His sovereignty, not only for His creation, not only for the rightness of His word and the truth of His work, and the righteousness and justice that He loves, and the goodness that is everywhere. But also we want to worship the Lord for His divine care. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. God is watching over it all. Nothing is outside of God's ability to affect. God is there constantly looking, constantly seeing. It says, from the place of his dwelling, he looks. That phrase, he looks, means to gaze intently. It doesn't mean like he's sitting in heaven yawning. Oh, what's going on down there? No, he's looking intently. He knows what's happening in your life. And he promises not to withhold any good thing. So when God says no, it's not good. Whatever it was, doesn't make any difference. Whatever God withholds is not good. He is watching intently. Everything that happens in your life is for a purpose. To bring about your good and God's glory. Those two things are absolutes. 
God is doing a perfect work. (laughs) He watches all the inhabitants of the earth. Listen to verse 15. He fashions their hearts individually. Who made you? God did. He put you together. In fact, in the 139th Psalm, the Lord says that when you were made in the secret place, when you were created in the womb of your mother, He knit you together. He put the pieces where they go. He made you how you are. He was there. In that, in that moment when you become a living being, God is there. He fashioned their heart and He considers all their work. He alone fashioned the heart of men. And since He is our Creator, all men are accountable to God. Not most, not some. All men created in the image of God are accountable to God. They're accountable for what they do. That's why it says He considers their works. He watches what man does. He watches it all. Sometimes, as he's considering that point, sometimes, as God watches men, man has a dependence on man and not a dependence on God. Look how he describes it in verse 16. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. The Bible declares to us that God raises up kings and takes kings down. No king is saved because of an army. Remember we talked last time about Nebuchadnezzar? And Nebuchadnezzar who thought it was all about how great he was. So God made him go crazy for seven seasons. Or for a season. Whether that season is uh, seven years or a single season. We can debate later. But he, he has Nebuchadnezzar go crazy for a time. Was it because of Nebuchadnezzar's army that Nebuchadnezzar remained king at the end? No, it was because of God's sovereignty. God's purpose. God's plan. That's what he's declaring. It's not the army that saves you. Is it our army that's going to save us? <laughs> what, is it our dollar? Is the dollar going to save us? What about our ingenuity, that good old American spirit, American know-how? That's going to save us, right? Oh, I'm not sure where that is. The last time we saw that was in World War II. Hasn't been around for a while. The point that, that the Lord is making is it's not by might, nor by power, but how? By my Spirit, says the Lord. Right? By my Spirit. So a man can trust in man. Man can trust in his, his own ability to save himself. But that won't save him. That's the point. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. Not by how strong you are. How was Samson delivered? By how how strong he was? He certainly wasn't delivered by how smart he was, right? He he had lots of issues. He had lots of issues. What delivers a man is not his might. It's the Spirit of the Lord that delivers a man. He says, a horse is a vain hope for safety. Now for them, they trusted in horses. We may trust in tanks. Maybe we'll trust in jet planes. Maybe we'll trust in bombers. Maybe we'll trust in Star Wars. Maybe we'll trust 
in some other system that hasn't come about yet. It doesn't matter. The horse is a symbol for it all. The horse used to be how they measured strength in the ancient world. How many horses you got? That's why the Lord told David, don't multiply horses. You'll put your trust in horses. Don't multiply gold. You'll put your trust in gold. Don't count your army. You'll put your trust in the size of the army. Don't multiply wives. They'll turn your heart away from the Lord. Isn't it funny how many of those things people don't listen to? Yep, well, I just need to... I just need to have a little more of this or a little more of that and I'll be safe. A horse is a vain hope of safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. It doesn't deny that a horse has strength. It doesn't deny that there's power. We still rate power by horsepower today, don't we? However, even though all that is true, someone's not delivered by their strength, by the horse's strength, by the size of their army. They're only delivered by the Lord. The, the Lord watches from on high. He's, he's looking at the divine care. And men will either trust in God or themselves. They'll either trust in the Lord and the fact that God is moving and working in their life. Or they will trust to their own strength. And God, He knows how to tell it all apart. Look what He says in 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. So now, in contradistinction... To those who went before, <clears throat> to those who trust in the, the strength of man, you know, you now have those who trust in the fear of the Lord, who trust in God, whose eye is on those who fear the Lord, on those who hope in, look at this phrase, I love this phrase, who hope in His mercy. I'm not hoping in my ability to do anything. I'm not hoping in my ability to snow God. I'm not hoping in my ability to somehow be good enough for God. I'm hoping in God's mercy. That His mercy is big enough to cover my boneheadedness. My knuckleheadedness. My problems. My struggles. And that's what David is saying. In distinction to those who trust in their strength or trust in their army or trust in the power of their horse to save them, he says, there's the, on the other side of that, the guy who fears in the Lord and trusts in His mercy. In the mercy that God has for him. To do what? Verse 19, to deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So to deliver them in death, that's speaking of an eternal salvation, a salvation beyond the grave, and to keep them alive in famine speaks of God's providential care here while we walk through this life. That even in the midst of famine, when I have no way to feed myself, if it's God's purpose and plan that I continue, He gives me what I need. If it's time for me to go home, I go home and He saves me from death. I don't have to worry about death. Death has been destroyed, right? <clears throat> I don't have to be afraid of those things because I trust in the Lord. And then David brings it around to himself. And not just them, not just him and those and that. It says, this is our, all of us, our soul waits for the Lord. That is a statement of absolute trust. Our soul waits on the Lord. When Elijah was out and, 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 and out of food, he trusted, waited on the Lord. 
you look through every guy through the, throughout the Old Testament into the New, when they found their back up against the wall, what did they do? They waited on the Lord. Jacob with all his kids in the middle of a famine, everybody's starving, and his son Joseph has been missing for years. At least 20. But God had a plan how to save the nation of Israel from starvation and grow them into a mighty nation in the furnace of affliction as they served in Egypt. And so God accomplished his plan while Jacob waited. He waited, trusted in the Lord. God works around and accomplishes his perfect design. For he, God, is our help. He's our help. He gets us through. And our shield. That's our protection, right? (laughs) He's our defense. Do yourself a favor. Stop defending yourself all the time. Just let God take care of it. If you get to where all you're doing is defending yourself, defending yourself is all you're going to do. So we want to see that He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him. Isn't that where we started? Rejoice where? In the Lord. How do we end? Our heart shall rejoice in Him. It's in the Lord. Our joy comes from the Lord. Why? Because we have trusted in His holy name. So let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. Our hope is in the Lord. i got like three more psalms to do. We're out of time. I, I'm always overachiever. I can't. I, I pick five psalms to do. I get two done. Can't complain that we're taking. We're going through psalms too fast. Anyway, right? We're working our way through the psalm. Prayerfully, we can learn that attitude. One of the things that the psalms shows us is the harder attitude of the worshippers of God. From days gone by. And we can hopefully tap into that and begin to understand their motivation and their relationship with the Lord.